Hey everyone, thanks for tuning in to another episode of Pattern Recognition, a show that connects the dots that lead to good business decision making. I'm your host, John Hu, growth equity investor at Norwest Venture Partners and former investment banker Goldman Sachs. So before we get started today, I just wanted to ask a quick favor of you and that if you are enjoying the show, I'd greatly appreciate if you could take two seconds to leave a rating and review. And in return, I promise you that this podcast will never, ever have ads that you'll have to skip through. But getting back to today's episode, I am very excited to announce Rushma Saujani as today's guest, as Rushma sits at the intersection of a number of themes that we focused on throughout the podcast, specifically bridging the gender gap and scaling a high impact organization. Now, Rushma is the founder of Girls Who Code, which recently was named by Fast Company as the most innovative nonprofit in the world. So it's really no surprise that Girls Who Code has served over 185,000 girls by partnering with governments and corporates alike to support women in computer science. So in today's podcast, Rushman and I discuss how the Girls Who Code team is actively trying to put themselves out of a job, aka what are the steps and tangible actions that the team is taking to bridge the gender gap. Now, throughout the episode, Rushma also reflects on the operational KPIs that drive Girls Who Code, as well as how a startup can successfully partner with large organizations like Walmart and JP Morgan without getting too bogged down. Lastly, we talk through how brand authenticity and staying true to your mission are at the core of an impactful nonprofit. So why don't we get started? Hey, Rushma, how's it going? Good. How are you? I'm doing fantastic. Thank you so much for taking some time today. So why don't we get started with a little bit on your background and how you came to found Girls Who Code? Oh my God. So I always say like I'm a weird person to have started Girls Who Code. I'm not a coder. (laughs) Both my parents were engineers, so I have like no excuse. I was terrified of math and science growing up. But in 2010, I ran for Congress. And when you run for office, you kind of go to a lot of schools. I would go into robotics labs and computer science classes, and I would just see like a ton of boys learning to code. And there were like no girls. and it kind of pissed me off. And so when I lost and I said, you know, of all the things that I saw, what's the place where I feel like I can make a difference and that needs to change. And it was really about girls and coding because you knew that, you know, tech was like disrupting every single industry. And that was happening at a time where like 43% of women are the ones who put food on the table, right. And, And pay the mortgage. And so if we didn't have women going into this field, it was a huge economic problem for our country. So that's what kind of led me to start thinking about Girls Who Code. And I spent about two years researching it, talking to people, like learning everything there was about women in technology. Why don't we have women in technology? What's the best intervention? And voila, you know what I mean? Seven years later, we've built this movement where we've reached 185,000 girls. That's wonderful. And could you also maybe give a couple stats that really just highlights that gender disparity in engineering? Sure. So less than 20% of the computing workforce is female. And we have about over 500,000 open jobs in computing and technology. And what's interesting is that it wasn't always this way, right? The world's Mm -hmm. first programmer was a woman. You know, in the 1980s, if you walked into any computer science college classroom, it pretty much would have been 40% women. So at a time where technology is, you know, again, you know, a part of everything about the way we live and work, Year after year after year after year after year, we're losing women in this industry. And so our philosophy at Girls Who Code is that you got to get them young, right? And that if you get girls interested in computer science, by the time they get to college, they're more likely to pick it as a career. 
And so what we do is like, we have girls who code clubs that start at third grade and go all the way up to, you know, uh, senior year in high school. And we have 10,000 girls who code clubs across the country, whether they're at public schools, private schools, community centers, churches, and synagogues, and girls learn how to code there. And then we have free summer programs. So we run about 80 of these in 11 different cities inside technology companies. So whether it's Facebook or Sephora or BlackRock or AT&T, you know, we will take 20 girls that are rising juniors and seniors in high school and we will teach them how to code with the hopes that they go on to major or minor in computer science. And what's happened now seven years later is that they are. And so we have 30,000 girls who code alumni right now on college that are majoring or minoring in computer science. That's wonderful. And I love that the organization is now old enough where you can start to see those early cohorts succeed. Yeah, it's happening. Yeah, that's awesome. And I love that you mentioned how CS back in the day was actually pretty equal in terms of gender distribution, because I was a CS major back in college. And I remember in one of my lectures very distinctly learning about Grace Hopper and how she had built the very first compiler and then looking around the room and seeing literally no women in the room. So I'm curious, what do you think are the structural reasons for why that gender disparity has gone from good to bad over the past few decades? Yeah, so I think it's culture, right? You know, in the 1980s on television, you kind of saw the birth of the programmer, right? And it's like a dude in a hoodie, he's sitting in a basement somewhere, and you saw him on right weird science and Revenge of the Nerds and war games. And and I think little girls looked at that image and they said, not only do I not want to be him, I don't want to be friends with him. But if you ask kind of most of the women in your life, like they will point to something they saw in television or a magazine or a role model as like the thing that got them excited about a career. Like, so for me, I'm a lawyer. And I remember that I decided that I was going to be a lawyer when I saw Kelly McGillis in this movie, The Accused. And I was like, wow, she's amazing. I'm going to do law. And so culture matters. And, you know, culturally, not only do we have this kind of image of a programmer on television, but you know, we had a Barbie doll that said, I hate math. Let's go shopping instead. We have t-shirts that you can buy in Forever 21 that say, I'm allergic to algebra. We have the movie Mean Girls, which, you know, she gets an A on her math test and she crosses it out for a D just to get the affections of a boy. So we have all these things that we see in culture that are literally turning girls off. Even if you think about, you know, Silicon Valley on HBO, you know, did not have a female character, right, on it for the longest possible time. And these things matter, right? They really matter. Because if you don't hear about Grace Hopper, if you don't hear about Ada Lovelace, if you don't see yourself on these shows, you can't imagine that this is possible for you. You cannot be what you cannot see. Yeah, that totally resonates. And so as you think about how Girls Who Code is empowering the future of female engineers, and you've given a couple of small examples, but could you give some higher level examples of just your success to date, any sort of metrics that you're really proud of? Yeah, I mean, so we have taught 185,000 girls to code. And last year, we graduated less than, what, 15,000 computer science graduates were women or some crazy number. So like, we are building that pipeline of talent. And we feel like at the rate that we're growing by 2027, McKinsey did a study for us that we will, we can get to parity. So this wow. is a problem that we can actually solve, yeah, in our lifetimes. 
and I'm seeing it. You know, I'm seeing, you know, I'm do where thirty-three uh, percent of APCS principals exam takers are girls. If you look at Princeton, Harvard, Stanford. If you look at their engineering departments now, they're sitting in the mid-thirties of women. And you know, again, five, six years ago, it was twenty. So, like, we flooded the pipeline with women and with young women on college campuses. Now we want to do the same in technology companies. And so part of where the new thing that we're really thinking about is, you know, are these cultures at these big tech companies, are they ready for this influx of women that are coming to not only hire them, but to keep them? Yeah. You know, are the capitalists ready for these women that are coming with their big ideas, you know, to fund them? And so now it's no longer a pipeline problem anymore. And that's really where a lot of our focus now is starting to be. And as you think about bridging the gender gap, are there any discrete obstacles or challenges that come up consistently in your work? Well, one, I think, like I said, culture and technology companies, right? Like it's like for a lot of these men, they've never worked with women before, let's be frank, yeah. right? And there's a lot of, whether it's microaggressions or outright sexual harassment, right? Things that we have to really deal with. And you've seen, you know, a lot of that kind of pop out during, you know, the Me Too movement. And so really getting companies to kind of get ready for that and to have really honest conversations. I really also believe, you know, 40% of girls who code teachers are men. And so I believe in the power of men and I believe in this generation of men that they, they want equity too. And so how are we preparing the men in the room to be male allies? You know, one of the best things I saw last year, I was speaking at the Rochester Institute of Technology and RET had gone from like, you know, again, in the 20% to the 30% of women in their computer science department. And so I went and I spoke to the women in computing group. And I remember I was sitting there and I saw these four or five men that had come to this club meeting. And at the end, I was like, who are you? And they're like, we're the men who support the women in computing group. Like they had formed a club inside a club. <laughs> and when I talked to them, they're like, look, we know that the women in our field got it harder. And so we want to do our part. So when we're sitting in RIT and the teacher makes an inappropriate comment, we're going to say something. If we get back from an interview at Twitter and we learned a lot about the questions that they're going to ask or what the technical exam is going to be, we're going to share that information. That's what it means to be a male ally is to recognize the power that you have, the privilege that you have, and to basically lift up your sisters. And I think that that's the model that we need to create in companies right now if we're going to get to parity. Yeah, that makes a ton of sense. And I think that's something that some companies are pioneering more than others. But hopefully in the next few years, I think all companies will wake up to the realization that diversity is key to their success going forward. Yeah. And also, like you know, the other thing I've really been talking a lot about is my new book, Brave Not Perfect. You know, girls haven't been socialized to fail, to get rejection, you know, to iterate right on their code. And so part of it is like, how do we promote and support in perfectionism. And, and I, I argue, like, I think bravery is the anecdote to perfection. And like, you can build your bravery muscle, right? Whether that's doing things to practice imperfection. Like, you know, I take on a physical challenge every month, whether it's learning how to surf or going karaoke or going to <laughs> school or, you know, put, being the toy fixer in my house, right? I push myself out of my comfort zone. I stop telling myself to give up before I even try. And I get out of this set that this mindset that I'm either good at something or bad at something. And that's a practice. And it's something that I've been engaging a lot of women in my life 
and the women who've been reading my book in this movement about of like, how do you learn bravery? Because you're not born brave. Yeah. So then why don't we hone in on the structural ways to do so, right? Because it's one thing to say, hey, go be brave. But in your book or just in your life practice, what are some specific ways females or even males can go about honing bravery? Yeah. Well, one, you can't be brave if you're tired. Like you can't be brave if you're tired. (laughs) And so I think like prioritizing rest and your wellness is really important. Whether for me, that's, you know, getting seven, eight hours of sleep a day whether that's getting to the gym, whether that's thinking about what you eat, whether that, you know, I like to have breakfast by myself once a week. And it just, I don't know, centers me. So like putting your wellness, you know, we talk a lot about wellness for our body. Like we drink our green juice or not eating dairy or gluten or whatever it is. But we also need to think about wellness for our mind. And there has to be strategies and practices beyond meditation that kind of allow our brains to stretch. And I think practicing imperfection is actually one of those practices. So, you know, one, I think resting. You know, the second thing is this idea of practicing imperfection. I don't know if you have this, John, but do you ever know if people like they have this like at the bottom of their email, they'll be like, excuse my typos. I sent this from my phone. (laughs) Yeah, I don't have it myself, but definitely see it all the time. Right. So to me, delete that, right? Delete that. Who cares if you freaking send a typo, right? (laughs) Who cares? And we spend so much time, whether it's rereading our emails, whether it's taking the perfect selfie, whether, you know what I'm saying? We edit ourselves in our lives. And that takes a lot of time. And so whatever that means for you, figure out how to practice imperfection. Whether that's, you know, going to the grocery store without a full face of makeup on, whether that's sending an email with a typo in it, right? Whether that's not presenting the perfect image of yourself, you know, like practice imperfection in your life. One of the ways I really see it play out in work is, you know, when you're in a meeting and it's time to ask a question, you're kind of writing down and thinking about the perfect question saying, do I sound stupid? Or just raise your damn hand and open your mouth. And so there are so many ways that perfectionism holds us back. And so practice being imperfect. And what you'll see is that no one cares about your imperfection because they're too busy thinking about themselves. And we so quickly go from I made a mistake to I'm stupid to, oh my God, I'm going to get fired all in about 10 seconds. And oftentimes like our wildest fear never happens. And the second practice I talk a lot about, or the third practice I think a lot about is this idea of doing something you suck at. I see this, I have a four and a half year old son and my son is always trying to fail. Whether it's like, let me just do that. Let me ride my bike by myself. Let me play this toy by myself. Let me figure it out. Don't help me, right? That's what Sean always says to me. Don't help me. And it's, you realize that when you're little, like you kind of build your bravery muscle by doing things you suck at and doing them over and over and over again not just to get better at it, but to feel what it's like just to be okay. And I think that like the older we get, especially for women, we get way too confused between the things that we're good at and the things that we like. And we don't do things we suck at anymore. But when you do things that you suck at, you actually learn what it feels like to be alive. Yeah. I really like how you've taken this practice of imperfection and kind of 
put it underneath the umbrella of the practice of broader self-compassion. I hadn't thought of it that way, but it's definitely a practice for one thing. But also, yeah, you can't be perfect in anything until you try and you'll always be imperfect in those first few times, let alone always. So that's a really, really great framing. And so I really appreciate you saying that. Yeah. And there's joys that I mean, like, like, for example, I love to sing, but I'm in that percentage of the population that's tone deaf. <laughs> and I don't know, like, so when I go to karaoke, it's just, I love to sing, but I'm not ever going to be great at it yeah. ever. It's not the best rendition of Mr. Brightside, but it's right. has the passion. <laughs> right. And I think the last tool is just like this idea of just starting. You know, I think that so many of us have like these secret dreams Sometimes they're side hustles, right? For us, sometimes we just think about them and then we talk ourselves out of them. And I always say like, I don't know where in your life, John, that you feel like regret or envy, but that's where you should live. Because our regret or envy is often the place where we actually want to be and that we've talked ourselves out of. Yeah. And it's also the place where you grow the most too. Yep. And so Reshma, one of the things we like to do on the podcast is we like to hone in on some of the operational factors that go into building such a successful organization. And so one of the questions I always ask is, what are some of the key KPIs you use to gauge the health of the business? And so for a for-profit business, you know, oftentimes it's revenue growth, et cetera. So I'm curious, as one of the fastest growing nonprofits out there, one of the most successful of the modern era, what are some of the KPIs you use to track the health of the business, quote unquote, or even just the operations themselves? Well, you know, we from the very outset had set a goal. Like we wanted to get to gender parity in technology jobs. And so then we always worked our way backwards to say, okay, how many kids do we have to teach? How many clubs do we have to start? You know, what do we have to do from the culture change perspective to basically get to that point? And so the first thing I always say is like, where are you going? And oftentimes, you know, for profits, it's like, how many widgets? What's my revenue? For nonprofits, it's got to be like, what's the problem that you're trying to solve? Like you should always try to put yourself out of business, I feel. And so we've had a business plan, you know, essentially from the beginning. And every year we basically gauge how we're doing against that. And so I think that that has been really, really, really important for us in terms of determining kind of, you know, our health. I think I've also had to, you know, how's my team doing, right? Because if you're churning over people all the time, if people aren't excited to come here, again, I'm not paying people a million dollars. They're working their asses off, right? They got to believe. And, you know, we're constantly serving our team, checking in with our team, thinking about, you know, I give, I'm an organization with a lot, obviously a lot of women work for me. Everybody gets three months of pull, you know, paid leave, right? And that's important to them. So like, how is my team doing? And I think as far as me as a CEO, I'm always thinking about, am I hiring people that are smarter than me? I have worked for somebody who just wasn't a great leader because he just never could hire people who were smarter than him. And in everything that he's led, he's just failed at, quite frankly, because he's never been able to get over that. And for me, you know, as the kind of the visionary, the creative, the person who kind of sets where we're going, I need really strong people in their, in their seats. And I need to feel like I'm learning from them every day. And so, and that, yeah. 
Yeah. And I think that last point is exceptionally wise. I think a lot of times what we'll see with younger founders and, and totally understandably so, they'll get really uncomfortable and they'll get really self-conscious about hiring someone who is wiser than them in some category. And the reality is, is I think as a CEO or as the leader of the organization, you're constantly, I mean, your only job is to keep up-leveling your team, right? And, and how could you possibly up-level them or recruit the best talent if you're somehow better than them in that category? So, I think that last point is extremely wise for building a team that scales and to find the most leverage out of your time. Yeah. And I think it's the number one reason for girls with success. I just have brilliant, amazing people who work for me. They're perfectly smarter than me. You know what? I know what I do well. And I think that's the other thing is like knowing your weaknesses. Like, and I know my weaknesses and I hire for that. Yeah. If that makes sense. Yeah. No, that completely makes sense. So then just a quick tactical question there is, if it is your weakness, how do you go about finding who's strongest? I don't know. I feel like even though it's my weakness, I know it's my weakness and I know what I would do to succeed. I just can't do it. I'm not always great at process, right? I'm like, go fast. Here's what I think. And I think out loud a lot. But I know that people need process. They need to know where are we going? How did we get there? Why are we doing that? And like my brain is just constantly moving like all the time. That part is also often hard for me, but I recognize that other, even though I don't need it, other people need it. Yeah. And so finding someone who could do that. You know, one of the things I learned from Jack Dorsey, who's a friend, he used to always say to me, you know, the thing that I didn't get in the beginning that I've gotten better at is like failing faster. I mean, I'm firing faster. And I've learned very quickly when if I make a hire and it's not working, I know it's not working in week three, not to just kind of try to make it work. Right. And so sometimes my instinct or what I think is right, isn't right. And I get counsel from my board or from other members of my e-team but I know if I've made a mistake to like let that relationship go as fast as I can. Yeah. And that's a really tough one because you've spent so much time and energy recruiting them. And you've also gone through the work of screening out a ton of other candidates. So there can be a ton of sunk costs in terms of how difficult that can be. Yeah. But Rashma, one of the things that I've always been really impressed about with Girls Who Code is the list of corporate partners that you work with. So it's essentially the who's who of the Fortune 500. And I think one thing that a lot of nonprofits and startups just in general really struggle with is working with these large corporate partners where they either move really slowly or they're really bureaucratic. Yeah. And so do you have any lessons learned in working with the JP Morgans and the Walmarts of the world? Yeah, I think it goes back to the fact of like, we're in a partnership together. So it's not like they're making a charitable donation to us. We're solving a problem together, right? They're helping us build the pipeline of talent and we're solving their pipeline problem. And I think we've always approached it kind of that way in terms of, you know, we're filling a need and we're like, we're, we're literally partners in this together. And, you know, listen, I think it, this is a one area where the corporate community, if it wasn't for them, we wouldn't have been able to make the progress that we made because I don't think government has really caught up to the fact that like, we need to change our education system to get kids a skill set. And so they've had the foresight and in many ways, understanding that's not always altruistic. Their number one problem is they need talent. And they can't, they don't want to hire just from half the population. So like, great, you know, and we kind of know how to solve that problem probably better than anybody else. And so I think that we've really, in many ways, kind of found our way to one another 
and having a similar sensibility of what we're trying to do. That's great. It's definitely about aligning incentives, right? Yeah, normally, right. I think the thing with corporations is normally there's a CEO or somebody who has budget that cares about a topic because it's personal. And it's very hard often to kind of get an entire organization, you know, rallied around something. And when Girls Who Code is partnering with JP Morgan or Bank of America or Facebook or, you know, we're all aligned, right? That this is the entire company wants to see this happen. And that's because I think in many ways, like, again, we have the same need. And Rashma, shifting to the last part of the podcast here, which centers around the title, Pattern Recognition. I'm curious, have you seen any sort of consistent patterns across the most successful nonprofits? Well, one, I think it's like, are you authentic? Girls Who Code is a girl-led organization. Everything about the way that we look, we feel, our brand, our colors, what we say is authentic. And we speak up for our girls. You know, we spoke up against the Muslim ban, you know, against not having, you know, trans bathrooms, like everything, you know, Black Lives Matter. Like we represent our girls and we speak up and out for them, even in ways that might hurt us financially. We don't care. And it's about to me, like, are you authentic? And are you always going to do the right thing? And I think that we do. And I think part of our, quote, success is because we speak our truth and we live our truth. And I think that's very important for organizations to do. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I think that is a consistent theme across all successful brands, whether those be nonprofit or for-profit. I think nowadays consumers, especially the younger generations, are so tuned in to brand and the authenticity mm-hmm. behind it and what that says about someone if they are supporting them, if they're you know involved in that organization, if they're buying from that organization. The idea of brand and authenticity is just so, so key, I think, for future success. And you can't fake it. Like they know. And that's why I think in many ways, Girls with Code is like bigger than just coding. It represents bravery. It represents activism. It represents change making. You know, it represents speaking truth to power. Like, you know, there's so many other associations with Girls with Code than just quote coding. I think the second thing is like, we weren't afraid to fail and make mistakes and try things and shut them down, which is not typical for a nonprofit. And part of it is because from the beginning, I've always wanted to go out of business. I want to solve this problem and then move on to the next problem. I don't want to build a legacy organization. It's almost like every year that I'm getting another paycheck from Girls Who Code, I'm pissed off, right? Because I'm like, that's not the point, right? The point is to solve the problem and then to move on. And I think that's why we've had, we've been relentless about our growth and about you know, because I always feel like I'm far behind. Like there's another girl who wanted to code today that I couldn't teach because I didn't have the resources or, the, or, or I'm not in that country yet or I'm not in that state yet or I'm not in that city yet. Or there's another girl that was going to build something about climate change that I didn't reach that like, you know, I didn't allow her to like walk into her own power because of that. Like, so, so we have that sense of urgency, right? That I think has been, you know, that can all, all feel stressful if you're here, working here sometimes, right? And for me and my team, but I think is a lot of why we do what we do. Yeah, that's absolutely wonderful. And so then Rushmore, last question here for you. I'm a big consumer of content, the podcast, books, movies, TV shows of the world. I'm curious if anything in that category has changed your perspective and why? Generally in life? Yeah, anything. I mean, I feel like I'm constantly consuming content. Like I read a book a week. I love to learn. 
I watch not as much TV as I probably should because it's good mindless candy. But I don't know. I think that like we're living in this really weird time right now where I feel like emotionally as like the daughter of refugees, as a woman of color, as a woman, you could be getting so much coming at you and it, it can make you not want to leave your house. And I have really, really tried to make sure that I'm watching things, I'm seeing things, I'm reading things that inspire me, that fill me with love and with joy. Because I think that if we approach the world with love right now, I think that we will change it faster. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I mean, they've been saying it since the 60s, but love is the answer, isn't it? (laughs) It's true, though. I mean, listen, and I think that, you know, you don't get a lot of love on social for love, right? Like, I know if I'm on Twitter and I want to say something nasty, 5,000 likes. (laughs) If I want to celebrate one of my students, 20 likes. And that's really sad. Yeah. But that's what's happened. And and so I think, you know, the day of the girl on October 11th, we're having the largest digital march. And it's just, you know, we have like 500 views on TikTok right now. And it's just like, you know, if you ever want to feel good, just like watch these girls and their little, their marches and the things that they're fighting for and the things that they're speaking up against. Like, and we at Girls of Code have to, like, we fight to tell their stories. Because there's a lot of girls who are going to heal us, who are going to lead us, who are going to change us. They're our revolutionaries, right? They are our leaders. And every day I fight to get their stories told. And you got to fight up against a lot of crap. You know what I mean? That is like trying to vie for our attention and trying to put hate in our hearts. Yeah. Well, Rashma, with all the hate out there, I think one of the things that makes me feel love is the success that organizations like yours have. So I really not only appreciate you joining the podcast, but also I think thank you on behalf of society for doing what you do with your team of Girls Who Code. Thank you so much, John. We say thank you. Once again, a big thank you to Rashma for joining us today. If you're at all looking to give back to the community, I'd highly encourage you to check out Girls Who Code. And if you'd like to learn more about Reshma or the Girls Who Code organization, I've included some info in the show notes on the podcast website at patternrecognitionpod.com. We've also got a whole host of other great founders joining the show in the coming weeks, including Brian Halligan of HubSpot. So I've tweeted out that whole list of upcoming guests and would love for you to tweet your questions in so that I can give you a shout out during those interviews. You can tweet at me at John Heasy. That's J-O-H-N-H-E-E-Z-Y. So thank you all for tuning in and I'll talk to you next week. Bye.